0: And masters almost surely have a plan There's clearly maybe something there beyond the realm of man Until we've thoroughly tested every last close-chested view Find the more you think you know, the less you really do Where. Well, Hireside Greg Carlwood and
1: Company. How's it going, side Chatters? Drinking a little drink, smoking a little smoke, and trying to keep the SS side at full steam in the choppy waters of this modern reality. From sunny San Diego, I'm Greg Carlwood. And I know not everyone is a fan of these pre-introduction introductions, but I just think today is a hell of a show that can use a little bit of context just in that, first off, I think it's great when we have a guest who is a dedicated researcher and also a Higher Side Chats fan, because I just think you get some little moments that wouldn't happen otherwise. So that's just kind of a fun thing. But I think John does a great job regardless, especially since I'm not sure how many interviews he's really done. But he also has one of the most impactful personal stories out there, which really fueled the research. And on top of all of that, he's kind enough to give away his book for free. And I think everyone should take him up on that. So we're lucky to have the guy. Given the health problems he's had, we're lucky he's alive to even talk about his research. And yeah, this show is largely about gut issues, but we're learning more and more that the gut is where the rubber really meets the road when it comes to our health and our immune system. And you might not even realize you have a gut issue, but it's sort of insane how many of us do, or how many of us have a health condition we don't even consider related, but yet the gut microbiome is where it starts. Also, it is something we talk a little bit about in this episode, but it really got me thinking about gut viruses, bacteria, and parasites, and how they are huge factors in our behavior, in our mood, and our thinking. We give a few examples in the show, but extrapolate that out, and the implications can be pretty mind-blowing. But regardless, I think John put a lot of work into preparing for this, which I appreciate. I think it is really crucial information for beating back the beasts of the biome, and I'm even planning to have John back after he tries to fine-tune my diet a little bit and see if we can't tweak a few things and have me feeling suboptimal, (laughs) just to see how it goes. But the main thing is stick around for John's book offer, appreciate the fact that we have another researcher who also likes the show, he is one of us and empathize with just how serious this stuff is and how backwards our medical system really can be. But let's do the damn thing. John Brisson, the gut guy himself, enjoy.
2: The higher side.
1: Holy hell, Hireside Chatters. Health and wellness are the offerings on the THC altar today because the long road to corporate food and oil-based allopathic medicine has been paved with profits for the Archon-controlled Capstone Cabal and the lives of our loved ones along the way. Yes, it seems we've been attacked on all sides in a perfect storm of health suppression, from a plethora of chemical-filled injections during our first months of life to an engineered lack of education and preaching of a deceptive food pyramid, to grocery stores filled with frankenfood and a medical system structured to support the bad habits we've been bred for. It's sicker than sick and tantamount to mass murder, if you ask me, with coke-wielding polar bears and Tony the Tiger laughing all the way to our untimely graves. It is a real problem, folks, and I'm sure we all know people we hold dear who suffer from ignorance and addiction when it comes to their health. Many of us probably have family that left us too soon because those super value meals are just too tempting. Or know nice, kind people who suffer daily from conditions they could probably overcome with a swift change of the diet, but they've just never heard it from a doctor. But don't take my word for it because today's guest knows these troubles all too well. His name is John Brisson and he's the man behind the book and website Fix Your Gut. And having taken charge of his own life, he's repaired the damage the system has done and become a bona fide expert in getting us all back on track. Here to help us avoid those golden arches and the pearly gates, the great immune system stabler, my Neo of the medical matrix, the gut guy himself, John, my man, welcome to the higher side.
3: Excellent introduction and as always, Greg. Thank you for having me.
1: (laughs) Yes, man. Yes. I really loved your book and I think this subject is so important. It's kind of hypocritical to be sounding the alarm on chemtrails and Hollywood mind control and all these ways we're being manipulated while eating Frosties and French fries. I mean, that's just the way it is. So I like to see a health-related show every other month or so. And I'm glad you could be the guy today because personal testimonies, they go a long way with me. And I'm sorry that your family has gone through so much pain because of our corporate-controlled diet and medical system. But that is probably the best way to start because it is so impactful. So maybe talk to us about the experiences that led you down this road of really becoming the gut biome guru you are today.
3: Yeah, Greg, it's definitely been a long hard journey that I've gone through over the years and I've lost both my own health to some degree and health of many and the life of many loved ones that have been in my family and it's sad as tragic, you know, many of your listeners, many people listen to Higher Side chats. They definitely have their own health issues and They've dealt with their own illnesses in their families, and even their own death too, as well. And everybody has their own personal health journey to go through. Greg, you know, myself included. I initially was 100% all in allopathic medicine. You know, I was born three months premature myself back in '85. Almost died from that. I was actually born dead. They had to revive me. Mm. And I spent a lot of time in the UNC Chapel Hill medical community for the next year. They were testing me, making sure that. I didn't have any mental cognition issues for being so premature at the time, and I recovered from it fairly well. I mean, had asthma and allergies growing up from a poorly functioning immune system. My mother had systemic lupus, so of course, during that time, they recommended that she actually abort me because they were afraid they didn't know how her lupus would affect me at the time. Of course, she was a staunch Catholic, so she decided not to abort me, of course, and her complications of having lupus did leave me to be born premature. And of course, they also told her not to breastfeed me at the time too. So she did not. And she gave me a really toxin-laden soy children's infants formula because I was allergic to cow protein. You know, I was allergic to milk at the time. Mm. So that led me to have somewhat health issues growing up. I had asthma. I was hospitalized a lot of the time throughout my years. And Eventually, my appendix ruptured when I was 14 years old. I spent a month in the hospital recovering from that, went down to 110 pounds. Took Accutane as a teenager Uh. to deal with acne, of course, stemming from gut issues as well. My grandpa was a pharmacist. He was always big in allopathic medicine. So I kind of had that same worldview that allopathic medicine was the only way to go. So he told me Accutane was relatively safe at the time. So I took Accutane, didn't know any better. For years, I did fairly well as a young adult. I didn't have too many issues. The asthma and allergies were there, but they were somewhat under control. Then, when I was about 24, I contracted H. pylori. I was at a function with my wife at my grandmother in law's house and ate some fish. I must have consumed some contaminated water that had H. pylori in it. And my stomach burned for the first time. And let me tell you, Greg, it's weird. As sick as I was when I was dying from my appendix rupturing, it did not make me as OCD or mentally ill that the H. pluri did later when it caused me to get silent reflux and really bad gut issues. Wow. We talk about it later. All these consistencies of the toxin-laden world that we live in, whether it's chemtrails or EMF exposure and effects that it has in our gut. But for me. I guess it was a culmination of all the issues that I've had throughout my life and all the things I've been exposed to. And it was a straw that broke the camel's back moment. I remember my father was one of the first people diagnosed with hepatitis C in the United States in the late 80s, early 90s. He had gotten it from intravenous drug use of heroin in the 70s. Whoa. He later kicked the habit of, and so he gave up drinking and actually was diagnosed around the time my mom passed away. My mom did pass away from complications of systemic lupus when I was around the age of seven. And that was around the time he was diagnosed with hepatitis C. And we know that hepatitis C, the virus itself affects the microbiome. It affects digestion. It affects health, of course. You know, liver is paramount for proper digestion through bile production and everything. Even with him being one of the first people to try the drugs, interferon, and rob and I spent countless nights as an adolescent up with him. He'd be vomiting into the toilet for days on end from the medications of trying to reduce the hepatitis C virus. His mental cognition never got as bad as mine did through the H. Pylori, even though his gut was probably in a state of dysbiosis.
1: Which I just wanted to throw in H. Pylori from your book. You say H. Pylori's colonization at this time is at least half the world's population, if not more. Yeah, this is a thing we've never heard of, but is like serious. But go on with your story. I just wanted to throw that in because most people probably never heard the term.
3: Yeah. And I mean, we can talk about H. pluri later when we get to the main cause of majority of autoimmune disorders are either microbiome dysbiosis within the body, whether it's bacterial viruses, mycobacterium, usually there's a cause. You know, the allopathic conventional medics community, when they look at autoimmune disorders, they kind of throw out their hands in the air. And they're like, well, we don't know why the body starts attacking itself for no reason. <laughs> <laughs> you know, what? that's not the case. I mean, it doesn't happen that way. But researchers know, I mean, the research data is all there. Even in the microbiological film, it's all there, laid out in front of people. But doctors, they either don't learn about it 20 years down the line or 30 years down. I mean, H. Pylori, for example, we can talk about H. Pluri. um Barry Marshall was the Australian microbiologist researcher that discovered H. Pylori in the mid-80s. And everybody thought he was crazy because he was going around saying the cause of ulcers is H. Pylori, which back then everybody thought the cause of ulcers were Mainly lifestyle related. Maybe you smoke cigarettes. Maybe you ate too much of a rich of a diet. Maybe you're under too much of stress. But he was going around saying, "No, I've isolated H. Pylori and ulcers and ulcerated tissue, and this looks like the cause of it." And you know, even microbiologists at the time thought it was silly. And eventually, he goes, "Well, you know what? I'm going to inoculate myself with H. Pylori. I'm going to grow it and drink it and consume it. And I'm going to get H. Pylori and I'm going to get an ulcer." And lo and behold, after he consumed the H. Pylori, he did get an ulcer. Mm. So microbiologists started looking at that as the cause of ulcers, but it wasn't treated by doctors into the early 2000s, almost 15 years later. And at that time, acid drugs, which should not be used in most cases of H. pylori, and we'll talk about that later, they were just given as, you know, you have an ulcer here, take this antacid, your stomach will feel better because less acid will come in contact with the ulcer. And it's sad. For me, no doctor was able to help me. I didn't even know it was H-pluri, Greg, for years. Every test I'd ever taken, except for the final one by DRG Labs, which was a virulent antibody test for certain proteins that h Pylori produced, even though I had the symptology of it, it was always negative until that final test. And H-pluri itself isn't necessarily an issue, like I mentioned, you know, at least half the world's population, maybe in Mexico, for example, could be as high as 80% are walking around with this. It's ubiquitous in nature. It evolved to have humans as a primary host. But the problem isn't necessarily the H. Pylori. which I don't think it is. I think it's more the lifestyle and the world that we live in causing issues with our immune system and with our health that leads H. Pylori to become opportunistic and start causing dysbiosis. mm. And that seems a lot of what's going on with a lot of these autoimmune conditions where people may have bacteria like staph, for example, which is the cause of lupus, ubiquitous throughout their whole body and they either come out of a tremendous amount of stress or they take a lot of antibiotics or they're environmentally exposed to chemtrails or they eat a lot of GMO foods and it starts affecting the gut. Then all of a sudden, their immune system is a state of disarray and they have what is known as a chronic staph infection, which is pretty much manifests itself as lupus. A lot of these autoimmune conditions have this microbiological origin. It's not just like I mentioned, the body attacking itself randomly for no good reason.
1: Mm -hmm. Man, you are definitely knowledgeable about this stuff. And I'm sorry for taking you down that tangent. I interrupted the latter chapters of your personal story, but I just wanted people to know, ding, 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 H. Plurite, you should pay attention to that because you might see it pop up in your own life or the lives of people you care about because it is apparently in half the world's population.
3: Yeah. And I mean, Erin Brockovich, which most people have seen the movie that Julia Roberts was in, she's a very strong environmental activist. I follow her work greatly. And We've been doing some research together in that h seems to be a lot in, in our municipal water supplies because they use chloramines, which are way more toxic than chlorine because you have chlorinated ammonia, to try to keep bacterial loads down at a cheaper cost and also try to purify drinking water better. The problem with using chloramine is it doesn't work very well against these biofilm, these thick matrices that bacteria produce like H-pluri. So every six months, a municipal water supply has to push a lot of chlorine into the water. Like if your tap ever reeks of, have a bleach smell to it, a chlorine smell to it, they're probably flushing your pipes. They probably use chloramines throughout the year generally. And for those two months, they just use strictly chlorine to kind of clean that bacterial biofilm out of the pipes. While H. pylori is congregating in these pipes and it's spreading like wildfire, that people are getting it just through consuming a glass of ordinary tap water. I mean, we can talk about the chloramines that are in tap water. We can talk about the fluoride that's in tap water or, you know, petrochemicals or whatever. We're going to talk about our water. Most people should consume filtered water if all possible to prevent ingesting all these issues. But it seems like bacteria contamination is really becoming a problem in a lot of these city water municipalities, Greg.
1: Yeah, I would say so.
3: So a lot of people are getting exposed to h Pylori that may have not normally had it as normal flora, just as simple as drinking a glass of improperly treated water. And because of that, you know, let's say that maybe they're on certain medications like SSRIs or ACE inhibitors that can reduce the immune function and maybe their stomach acid production isn't so great because occasionally they take in acids or maybe they're on proton pump inhibitors. They get the H-pluri in, it starts reducing the lactobacillus or one of the probiotic bacteria that's found in the stomach, and lo and behold, they start getting ulcers and anxiety and reflux that they never had before.
1: Mm. Man, obviously, this is deep stuff, and just based on the first part of your story, it, it seems pretty clear that you just came into this world beaten by the machine, and Sometimes I wonder with a story like yours, if we really are destined to do the work we do, if you choose to incarnate into a certain context in which you're going to grow into the certain kind of person you might want to be. Damn it, man. I mean, that is a-, a rough way to start, but given how knowledgeable you've become, it just seems like to me, it reinforces that possibility that we go on a journey and, you know, you're now on the rebound of a lot of that stuff with all the knowledge you have attained and you're now sharing.
3: Yeah, I mean, I definitely believe that we're all put here on Earth from some sort of purpose, even if we're possibly incarnated in this trap planet, as everybody (laughs) likes to call it so much. Don't want to call it prison planet. That's a Scientology term. (laughs) Oh, no. But I do think that it's definitely possible that maybe people suffer to gain wisdom some people choose to use that wisdom in a positive way, and some people choose to use that wisdom in a negative way. And I'm pretty sure that me suffering through my life through traumatic loss of my parents at a young age, and talk about too, my son, forgot to mention this part of my story too, Abel, he was born with extremely rare medical condition. He was sixth in the world diagnosed with it, which was known as congenital myopathy with excess muscle spindles. It was so rare at the time that They pretty much told us, Greg, when he was first born, his arms were contracted so much and he had such poor muscle tone that I remember the head pediatrician for the hospital telling me that was probably better if my son just went ahead and died. Oh, my God. And it really affected me. And of course, I told him to go to hell, obviously. I mean, what else could a person say to that? And so they put him on a ventilator and... They transferred him to UNC Chapel Hill where they did some genetic tests on him to try to really understand what was going on. And they sent a muscle biopsy to the Mayo Clinic. And it happened to be one doctor there who looked at the sample and was like, you know what, I may have seen this before. So he de- diagnosed it with, with him having that condition. It's an h a H-rasopathy mutation of E63K that leads more muscle spindles, which are sensory muscle cells to be formed, instead of muscle fiber. So his muscles aren't as strong as they normally would be. So we pretty much... Had to come to a conclusion where I didn't want him to suffer anymore. He just continued. We thought, you know, as much as they were telling us, he would continue getting worse until he would die and he couldn't breathe off his own without a ventilator. So, you know, my wife and I were making the hard choice of pulling him off ventilation. Well, I guess maybe the grand architect decided to intervene at that point. I don't know. Mm. But he actually pushed the ventilator tube out of his mouth and was actually breathing on his own better than when he had the ventilation tube in him. And the doctors, of course, said that was impossible. His lungs should have atrophied. Even my scientific knowledge, even I knew that his lungs should have atrophied. There should have been no way he could have done that, but it happened. So we took him home and we started taking care of him. And he was doing well. I mean, he was starting to make so much of recovery. I had him on ubiquinol to try to help his muscles function better, his mitochondrial function better. And he seemed to be doing fairly well. And we were taking him back to his hospital. One of his um, nutritionists said that he wasn't gaining enough weight. Of course, failure to thrive was part of his condition. So we kept trying to feed him, increased the feeding a little bit. Of course, he had to be fed through a feeding tube. And I was doing my best to make my own formula. Of course, you know, it's kind of hard. <laughs> There's not a lot of research back there about the time of doing so. But he was gaining weight. And eventually, we took him back. And she was like, Ah, oh, he's not gaining enough weight. Are you guys even feeding him? I'm like, yeah. I mean, we had nurses coming by every so often to check on Abel and stuff like that. And they could attest that we were feeding him. But she actually started getting the hospital social worker involved. and
1: Oh, fuck that.
3: You know, that we weren't feeding him, that we were feeding him our own formula. You know, and they started threatening that they were going to call Child Protective Services. And, of course, I caved in. I... I, I was scared at the time. I was a lot younger than I was now, and everything. And so we started feeding him regular formula, and sure enough, they were feeding him too much, and he started aspirating into his lungs. And eventually, he had an episode where he had to be ventilated again. And I kept telling him it was because they were overfeeding him, and they were feeding him the GMO laden formula, but they didn't want to listen to me. And so they kept saying, "Well, his muscular condition is getting worse. His lungs aren't able to function properly anymore. He's you know he's deteriorating, getting slowly dying." So eventually, he was hospitalized off and on, Greg, for about a period of three months. And I kept talking with them. I was like, no, look, it's because you're overfeeding him. When he goes to the hospital, you feed him less, he gets better, you send him back home, we put him back on normal feedings, he gets worse. Eventually, they finally figured out with me pleading that it was that they were overfeeding him and it was causing him to aspirate into his lungs. So they took him back home, I put him back on my formula, and he was doing well, he's actually starting to recover. He was actually about to get off of the ventilator, Greg. And Lo and behold, because of the damage that had been done previously with him being ventilated so many times, he had a sudden pulmonary embolism and he died.
1: Wow. God.
3: And I regret it every day of my life, man. I regret that I didn't stand up for him initially and just told them to go to hell and bring CPS on as much as they come at me with everything they possibly could, but I was scared.
1: Man, you can't do anything. I mean, honestly, that's just the way it is. You can huff and puff, but I mean, they're just going to take your kid and then put you in jail. I mean, you can't do anything. It really does suck. And this is the most frustrating and heartbreaking back and forth I've probably ever heard from anyone when it comes to dealing with the medical machine. But like I said, I think that you are just destined to do the work you do because you are so knowledgeable about so many different things. And all you can really do is channel everything that's happened into, you know, peeling back that onion for other people and trying to correct problems on a, on a wider base, you know?
3: Yeah, I definitely think that, I mean, through Abel, I continue to do my work. I continue to try to help other people and everything and in his honor. And I mean, it's a part of life. The cabal has us every way imaginable and controls us. I mean, when we look strictly at the microbiome, for example, we get our microbiome initially through our mother, through the womb. They used to think that the womb was sterile. It's not. It has its own microbiome. Mm -hmm. So we're initiated from just the beginning, just from that. Of course, then we get more of our microbiome when we're born onto the earth. You know, as soon as we go through the vaginal birth canal, we're exposed to lactobacillus and supposedly healthy probiotic type bacteria. And that's why there's a huge correlation between C-section births and developing of asthma and dysbiosis and stuff like that, because children aren't initially exposed to that probiotic vaginal flora that they would get from their mother, hopefully if their mother is healthy enough to have a good vaginal flora. Mm-hmm. You know, instead, they're exposed to more amounts of common bacteria that are found on the hand like Staphylococcus and Streptococcus and stuff like that. So, since they're exposed to both those types of bacteria, they're generally found more in gut as C-section children, which can you know lead to developing of allergies because they're histamine-producing bacteria. So, you see that correlation from there. So, just from birth, We see how it affects the microbiome, yeah. And then you take a child and you expose them to a multitude of vaccinations. It's going to have an effect on their immune system. It's going to have an effect on the microbiome. Of course, with the mercury that's in the vaccinations, having a serious effect on the microbiome too. And just at the very beginning, we're pushed in front of the world, and we could barely survive at this point. I mean, I'm a kid of the 80s, and it wasn't as bad as. The children who are born now. Yes. You know, but it was still bad for us. You know, I mean, we still had occasional, we had less vaccinations, but we still had them and the C section birth still occurred and everything. So, I mean, just from the basic point of just birth, our microbiomes are affected negatively by most people through the cabal and through what it puts it through through the birth practice and everything. And later exposed to crappy formulas with horrible GMO ingredients and Very high amounts of sugar and bad prebiotics for poor microbiomes like inulin causing digestive issues. I mean, many children who get soy based formula or milk based formula, you know, a lot of them have digestive issues. They have gas, they have diarrhea, they have constipation. You know, their microbiomes are already somewhat not formed properly from an improper birth. And now the food that they're getting, if they're not getting breast milk, which contains natural, proper immune peptides, natural. Probiotic bacteria like Lactobacillus ruditary and GOS, which is a prebiotic galactogosaccharide that's important for the health of the microbiome, you know, without nourishing breast milk. And instead, they're getting crappy formula that's not doing any favors to their microbiome. It, it's sad the way the cabal is and how it's affecting our child's microbiome, even from an early age. Is Our digestive systems don't even get a choice, or their microbiome don't even get a choice in the matter. Because of that, it's almost like a changing of one's gut. And I think that's where a lot of these issues come from in the modern world. And i would love to talk about it later, whether it's transgenderism, which could be a toxic plasmosis gondii infection, which has also been implicated in schizophrenia. Really? Borderline personality disorder, rage disorder. Yeah, I mean, that might be why men suffer from schizophrenia more often than women, because women have a somewhat natural protection to T. gondii because they don't want their babies to be influenced by it in the womb. That's why you don't have a pregnant woman change a cat box, because that's where if your house cat or outdoor cat comes in is affected with T. gondii, you know, you're exposed to it when you change the litter. So that's why you don't have pregnant women do that.
1: And I don't want to interrupt you too much, but that is something that I was thinking about when you talked about H. pleuri is to what degree could these parasites be altering human behavior to kind of benefit them and seek out the things that make them thrive? I mean, Joe Rogan on his podcast always talks about that cat thing with toxoplasm, that this parasite is supposed to go into mice and then makes the mouse take more risks, which allows the cat to catch it. And a lot of people apparently around the world have this now and they say there's a high amount of it in Brazil and they think that's why Brazilian soccer players are more aggressive and like they actually are able to maybe edge out other teams and just produce better soccer players because of a parasite perhaps. And then just to suggest that there's a possible link to thinking that you're in the wrong gendered body or something like that is pretty provocative i could see it i mean i can make room for it in my model of the world but it's also a a very taboo thing to suggest especially now
3: yeah i mean there's research of course research not being done in the united states being done in india that there is a link between t Gondii and gender dysphoria gender dysphoria was originally treated in the united states using antipsychotics, and majority of antipsychotics have pyridine rings, which work very well against parasites too as well. Same with schizophrenia, you know, most schizophrenics are treated with derivative antipsychotic drugs. And if it is caused by T gondii, which there are way more studies linking T gondii to schizophrenia development than there are transgender transgenderism or gender dysphoria. And I think that's just because it hasn't been studied in the United States if it was actually studied then it may show a stronger link to that. Wow! And I, I do think that, of course, there's probably an instance of transgenderism. Like you mentioned, the Brazilian players, if you have high amounts of testosterone, then if you have toxic plasmosis, gondii infection too as well, it will lead to, like I mentioned, rage disorder. More testosterone-filled behavior. Right, right. You know, taking risks, being stronger muscular, so it, w- it would manifest itself in that. But if it manifests itself in someone who's exposed to a lot of the Hormone altering chemicals like bisphenol A, you know, in the United States, for example, in our modern world, testosterone may be lowered, and males suffering from gender dysphoria, and then they also have a T gondii overgrowth too, as well. It it could possibly lead to them manifesting itself as gender dysphoria or transgenderism. It's weird. A, a lot of people with gender dysphoria and transgenderism, they've been also diagnosed with borderline personality disorder. They've suffered some sort of trauma through their early childhood or adolescence. And borderline personality disorder has also have been implicated with T. gondii too. There's been a huge connection between the two as well. So it's almost like what came first, the chicken or the egg? You know, did, did someone have a really traumatic event through their childhood and it caused their immune system to dive and the T. gondii was able to cross a blood-brain barrier and cause issues within their brain, whether actually taking over the brain parasitically or maybe antibodies that the body produces to T. gondii across the blood-brain barrier and cause changes structural in the brain. We see that with a lot of these autoimmune conditions. For example, H. pleuri, the bacteria has been implicated as one of the main causes for multiple sclerosis, Greg, Hmm. if it is able to affect the brain. So it's interesting, like you said, how these bacteria and parasites, H. pleuri evolved, and I hate using that term, but it kind of changed itself To prefer human hosts. And T. Gondii might have as well. It might have domesticated cats. Wow. Kind of got them around human beings. And there are theories around that of how it kind of changed the mindset similar to it affecting mice, making them play dead so cats will eat them and propagate the parasite. There's a grand possibility that it could have affected cats and made them domesticated toward human beings to try to reach a higher host. The sad thing is T. Gandhi I doesn't realize that human beings are the end host <laughs> uh. <laughs> for the parasite, especially in our modern world with sanitation. It kind of dies off. You know, you're know, you not exposed to the human feces as much as you are in third world countries and stuff like that. But it's kind of weird how it affects us and All these diseases can be linked to a lot of mental disorders and a lot of autoimmune conditions. And it's kind of interesting, you know, it's the chicken or the egg thing. Is it because the toxic world that we live in is the reason why it's manifesting itself mentally in all these issues like MS or gender dysphoria or schizophrenia, you know, increased cases as such? I mean, a lot of people talk about autism. And I know the conventional way of looking at autism. Well, the diagnostic methods just got better. That's why the number keeps increasing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, But I, I don't believe that to be true. I mean, there's a lot of research and majority of autism patients having dysbiosis in the gut One of the main bacteria being an overgrowth of clostridium, a reduce of the short chain fatty acid butyrate, and having a higher rate of proponic acid being produced in the gut by clostridium. I mean, a lot of people, especially in the natural health field, if you ask them about autism, they'll say there's a huge link between the autism and the microbiome. I mean, even conventional doctors will admit that majority of kids, sadly, that suffer from autism have digestive issues, you know, they have constipation or diarrhea or acid reflux is fairly common in children that suffer from autism. So, I mean, it could definitely have a strong link to the gut. Now, I'm not saying that there's an environmental link to it, too, that causes an epigenetical change, you know, like vaccinations or chemtrails or EMF radiation, that's probably different causes that eventually lead to the microbiome breaking down in these children. Mm Or maybe they even had a poor microbiome develop from birth, like we talked about, because they're exposed to these things later, it does cause a change to the microbiome where autism's able to manifest itself diagnostically. But it's just crazy how it all leads to the gut in some way or shape or form. Like I don't want to sit here and be primarily focused on the gut and say it's the cause of all health issues. Mm-hmm. But it does seem to be like a lot of health issues ranging from Mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis in cattle, which is the cause of Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis that researchers have known since the 1990s that it's the cause, but they still want to look at it as an autoimmune condition instead of it being a transplant zoological species that gets in humans through ingestion of ruminant animal products and meat or maybe contaminated water. They don't want to look at it as such. I mean, if they looked at it as that, and you tackle the condition as such, and you try to get the person on a better diet, have them avoid ruminant animal products like goat, sheep, and cow's dairy. Have them avoid ruminant animal meat. Have them work on their microbiome. Take good prebiotics like glycogosaccharides. Have them work on their body. And then their ulcerative colitis or Crohn's disease goes in remission. No, instead, they want to put them on TNF-alpha blockers which just blocks the inflammation, but doesn't tackle the mycobacterium avian paratuberculosis that they're still consuming with every glass of milk they drink. So let's, let's take care of the side effect. Let's not take care of the initial problem that researchers have known that as the cause of for years. Let's just keep putting you on these medicines. You progressively get worse because the mycobacterium continues to grow and eventually, sadly, you succumb to
1: Crohn's disease. Mm.
3: That's how the model <laughs> is. And you've had many guests on your show talk about it like that, Greg.
1: Yes. And I have a, a really great friend who suffers from the condition also took Accutane in high school and there were those commercials on television. Did you take Accutane and you now suffer from Crohn's disease? Give us a call. We're suing the company. You know, we all saw that kind of shit. And uh, yeah, it's just really unfortunate because how can you ask someone who took a FDA approved drug in high school now has a lifelong debilitating condition, how can you ever ask them to trust the medical system again? The FDA stamp of approval doesn't mean a goddamn thing to that person, you know?
3: Yeah, I mean, I took Accutane as a high schooler myself. And I mean, I didn't get as bad off as your friend. And what Accutane does is it causes epigenetical changes to genes that help produce collagen in the body. So it has a negative effect on the gut microbiome, it causes the gut junctions and leaky gut to develop more often because you need collagen to help keep your gut junctions and what they call the mucosal layer of the gut in healthy shape, you know, in healthy function. And Accutane forever changes its function, which could in some people who have a genetic disposition or weakness to mycobacterium avium paratuberculosis, and it's mainly found in Caucasian people, Accutane could cause your friend's gut to not have a good enough barrier. And so beforehand, when he was ingesting this map, he didn't really have an issue with it. His body would spell it out and he would be fine. But instead, now, with him ingesting the map and him having leaky gut, his body can't handle both of that. So it manifests itself as Crohn's disease, which is pretty much systemic map colonization or dysbiosis. Accutane, for example, all it left me with is dry skin. I'm balding from my hair, and an SOD2 mutation that affects my mitochondria. <laughs> so what I, you? <laughs> I uh, there's certain drugs that we don't realize, and it'll be in the future, that have these epigenetical changes that could sadly even be generational. It could have changed or mutated the SOD gene epigenetically in my body that I could have passed on to one of my children. You know, and when you're looking at it, that it's scary. You know, I mean, we know bisophosphates, for example, or phosphomax that's used for osteoporosis. The half-life in the body is 100 years, Greg, 100 years Fuck. until it clears out of the body.
1: (laughs) That's too long.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So it is crazy when we look at all these drugs that are out there and the effects that they have on our health. I mean, the effects that they can also have on our microbiome too, most- Americans look at the FDA as being trusted institution. You know, they're part of the government; they're there to help. But when you look at all the scandals that evolved the FDA for years, I mean, just for example, taking the generic form of Wellbutrin that was produced in the Caribbean, many people said for years that it didn't work at all. The normal Wellbutrin as an SNRI worked fairly well for depression, but the generic didn't work completely at all, and the FDA suppressed that they knew. The companies that were producing this generic Welbutrin, it didn't work. It didn't do anything. But they kept allowing it to be sold as working. So imagine you're taking this antidepressant. And I guess in theory, maybe it's a good thing that it wasn't doing anything. But let's say that, you know, you're one of the few people that suffer from severe bipolar disorder. Maybe an increase of dopamine might actually be a good thing for you. Okay. So you take it and it helps. Well, imagine you go accidentally get the generic prescription for it and you take it and it does nothing. And because of that, you spiral into a strong manic episode and you end up hurting yourself or hurting one of your loved ones accidentally. You know, and the FDA just hid this. I mean, there's numerous examples of the FDA clearing drugs that should have never been cleared or hiding drugs that should have been taken off the market. For example, Reglin, which is used for digestion to increase gastric emptying. There's a way safer drug called Metillum that's used in Europe that doesn't cross the blood brain barrier and affect the dopamine 2 receptors like reglan does but yet we use reglan here in the states and it's been known a person could take a dose of it gray in the hospital and they can have an acute psychotic episode from it crossing the blood brain barrier and affecting the dopamine receptors there's numerous cases of medical literature of that occurring also there's medical literature of it causing heart issues long qt syndrome in, in the heart but there's a safer medicine in Europe, but no, nah, they don't want to use that. Instead, they want to continue using Reglin here in the States just to increase gastric emptying. I mean, heck, pregnant women, if they have a C-section, are given Reglin, even if they don't eat anything the night before, to prevent them from vomiting during surgery. I had to tell them when my wife was pregnant with all of our children not to give her Reglan because there's no need to give her the drug. Mm-hmm. But they're just giving it willy-nilly out like it's nothing. I mean, through the overuse of antibiotics like ciprofloxin, fluoroquinolone antibiotics, which are toxic to the mitochondria. There's many people who they call it getting floxed, where they wake up one morning, even while they're taking antibiotic or even months later, where they start having heart issues, muscle pains, your tendon can rupture going down the street just because you took an antibiotic for a strep throat a couple of months back and doctors give ciprofloxin or fluoroquinolones out like candy. And you could give somebody coenzyme Q10 to improve mitochondrial function or give them magnesium to kind of hedge their bets while they take cipro to maybe prevent some of these effects. But no, doctors don't do that. Instead, they give it out quite frequently.
1: <laughs> Man, you're just such a wealth of information. And I'm just really impressed. In your book, you say There is an average of 70 million Americans diagnosed with digestive disorders every year. So this really is no small thing. And it seems to be getting worse. And your book is pretty amazing, man. It's almost more like an encyclopedia of conditions and protocols because it's like, have this condition, do X. Have that condition, do Y. But it's not like these are miracle cures. They're phases of a process that takes years in some cases. But there are some commonalities. What are some of the like, most broad recommendations for getting back on track, maybe before we have serious gut issues?
3: Most important thing I could say is diet. I'm not going to say there's a perfect diet for everyone. You know, there's some people who listen to higher side chats that are vegans and some people who are primary ketogenic diet that are meat eaters. And science says that as far as the gut microbiome is concerned, there's differing studies, but the train of thought is, is if you go too low carb and eat nothing but meat. For some people, it could have a negative effect on their microbiome and it could cause digestive issues. For some, it can actually help alleviate digestive issues too. There's many people who've done low fermentable diets and they've gotten better through their gut health. But I've seen just as much in my own clinical practice who have done it and their gut actually gets worse. And you can swing it to the same way with the other aspect in vegans in that you're eating way too much fermentable food stuff for the microbiome. So it could have a negative impact in certain people. They can have a lot of gas, a lot of digestive discomfort. It seems to be causing a problem for them. So no diet is really perfect when we look at the microbiome. It seems to be pretty much individual. But when we look at humans, and we look at our digestive system, we mainly have a monogastric digestive system similar to pigs, which of course, there we go again with human-pig hybrids. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, the pig-chimp hybrids.
3: Yeah, our, our digestive systems
1: are probably more
3: acune to pigs than they are bonobos. So I know vegans will argue, well, we don't have a carnivore digestive system. And that's true, but we also don't have a herbivore digestive system. We're not like cattles with our four stomachs and our digestive system full of archaea we probably need a mixture somewhere good in the middle. So Mm. I usually recommend a diet like the perfect health diet or a Mediterranean diet or something like that where you're eating a lot of grass-fed meat, organic if possible, a lot of wild-caught fish, you know, which you got to be careful because of the mercury component of that in Fukushima. So try to get your fish out of the Atlantic Ocean if possible. I know it's not perfect and try to stay for low mercury fish. But, you know, eating a lot of fruits and vegetables, which are good for our microbiome. They have a lot of prebiotics in there. Eating some good fermented foods like sauerkraut and kimchi, you know, try to get the best stuff that you can get at the um, grocery store. You don't want to eat a lot of yogurt and kefir that generally have a lot of sugar in that, which could help feed nasty organisms in your gut and cause a lot of dysbiosis. I'm kind of mixed on kombucha Ah. because kombucha has a lot of yeast in it, and it also has a little bit of alcohol, (laughs) which, by the way, I do want to get to that eventually, discussing drugs and their effects on the microbiome and on digestion too. This is the higher side chats after all, so I definitely do have to talk about marijuana and LSD and DMT and all that and everything and salvia. Of course. But usually, most important thing that a person can do right off the bat for their digestion is just try their best to clean up their diet. No, no one's perfect. I, for example, occasionally I'll eat Chipotle with my family every now and then. If I really want a burger, I'll eat Five Guys, even their French fries, which I know is bad.
1: I love Five Guys.
3: I won't eat the bread though, because I do have celiac disease, but I do love the meat. And no one's perfect. I'm not expecting everyone who's listening to me, unless you're ill. If you're ill, Then you may have more of a stronger urge to change your diet completely, to avoid GMO foods, try to eat organic and stuff like that. But if your gut's relatively healthy, you just wanna try to do the best that you possibly can. And that's maybe instead of the morning drinking large Starbucks coffee that you're gonna drink, maybe drink some green tea, maybe have a low sugar coconut kefir, maybe try to do something to build up your microbiome. No one's perfect, Greg. So that would probably be my recommendation. I'd also recommend making sure that you get enough sunlight, vitamin D production, endogenous vitamin D production is paramount for a proper immune function in combination with closing those gut junctions and helping prevent against leaky gut. And a lot of us do not get enough sunlight. Majority of us are stuck indoors with our jobs. That's probably how the Archons want us to be is stuck indoors and away from getting getting electrons from sunlight to help better us and help awaken us and help with our circadian rhythm and everything. So that'd be one thing I would say that's very important for gut health too. And I guess the final thing I'd like to harp on for most people other than diet and vitamin D and proper sleep and circadian rhythm is I would recommend supplementation of magnesium to help keep the bowels regular and also to help the mitochondria. I really do think magnesium is paramount. The majority of us, you know, are deficient in magnesium and it does help with digestion because that's the main problem for most people is most people aren't regular. They're not having one or two good bowel movements a day, which is paramount for proper digestive health. You want to make sure that you're eating a good diet, you're getting in enough water, you're staying hydrated. And you want to make sure that you are getting magnesium, which will help, of course, to soften the stools up and help you go better. Have you ever seen the commercials on television for the Squatty Potty?
1: (laughs) I was going to bring that up because I'm a big Shark Tank guy. And when I saw that on there, I thought it was pretty ridiculous. But then I heard you talking about it. And it does seem like there are some first world conditions that don't translate to the third world that could be isolated to actually just the way we sit on a toilet.
3: Yeah, I mean, pretty much the cause of appendicitis seems to be constipation, which is predominantly a first-world condition. And it could be from our improper diets, it could stem from our lack of movement, walking, living sedentary lifestyle, it could stem from a lot of things. But one of the main things it could stem from is us sitting improperly when we use the bathroom. I mean, as children, we all squatted. Animal squat, your dog when he takes a dump, the dog squats. So, we think it were arrogant of us to think that we change the anal rectal angle to a ninety degree angle by sitting on the toilet and require a more vagal nerve response to defecate like that wouldn't have some effect on our digestion or active defecation causes us to retain more stool, pushing more stool upwards if we're constipated into the appendix, changing the microbiome of the appendix. I mean our appendix is so vital for our health, and the conventional medicine treats it as just some vestibular organ that they could just throw away. A lot of your probiotic microbiome is safely kept in your appendix. I mean, when you get food poisoning, when you get viral gastroenteritis, when you have diarrhea, you flush a lot of your bacteria out of your body, a lot of your microbiome out as a protective mechanism of your body trying to expel the toxins associated with a lot of foodborne illness or trying to expel the virus. So a lot of your probiotic bacteria is safely kept in your appendix and it's supposed to, after the diarrhea is over with, it's supposed to spread out and repopulate your gut with good bacteria. I mean, a lot of people don't realize too, one thing that I forgot to touch on, a lot of these bacteria microbiome, they produce a lot of the neurotransmitters, serotonin and dopamine that control a lot of how we think and how we feel. 80% of our serotonin production isn't produced in the brain, it's produced by the bacteria in our gut, just to help move along fecal matter. I mean, serotonin is important for the contraction of peristalsis of the digestive system. When we lose our appendix, like I did, through an apodectomy, Serotonin's reduced, output production is reduced by the gut. Melatonin is produced a lot in the gut, which is very important for sleep. Serotonin keeps us awake. It's produced during the day through exposure to sunlight, to blue light. Melatonin is one of the strongest antioxidants known to mankind. It helps prevent cancer and inflammation. So if we lose our appendix, we lose A little bit of our microbiome's ability to produce these neurotransmitters and the ability for us to have a healthy microbiome. So let's say someone like me, and it did happen to me, I sadly got the norovirus. My son brought it home from school and I didn't realize it. And by the time you realize it, it's too late and you're on the toilet (laughs) purging your guts out, (laughs) I don't have an appendix. So lo and behold, my H. pluri, it came back a little bit and I had to take some delimiting to keep it back in check. So the appendix serves such an important function to our microbiome and to our digestion, but doctors consider it just to be, ah, the appendix doesn't do anything. It's in an important organ. No, (laughs) we could take it out. Even though there's studies that show that you could treat appendicitis with antibiotics like Zyfaxan that wouldn't really affect the microbiome of the entire body to a strong degree, Greg. I mean, you could easily tackle it that way and keep your appendix.
1: Man, (laughs) And it's so crazy because I don't even think a lot of people understand the function of the gut. I mean, they're calling it a second brain now in in alternative circles. I don't know how much of this is mainstream. I listened to some of this alternative health stuff and they're citing what seems like good research out there, but I don't know. I guess it's just not making it to doctors and regular people, but there's a lot of push to this look at the gut thing.
3: Very much so. Like I mentioned, you know, majority of serotonin. Some melatonin and dopamine are produced by the bacteria that are within our gut, and it has an effect on our health. For me, for example, H. Pylori produces ammonia in the upper gut, in the stomach, in the duodenum, and it mainly produces ammonia in the stomach through the production of urease to reduce stomach acid because ammonia is a highly basic. So it's kind of to buffer the stomach acid that so the H. Pylori can propagate and survive longer in the stomach. But ammonia, once it starts overwhelming the liver and the kidney's capability of breaking it down properly, it starts increasing MDMA receptor activity in the brain, causing a glutamate-gaba imbalance, which causes a lot of anxiety for a lot of people, including myself. So it's interesting that H-pluri it can cause anxiety just by having too much ammonia that the body has kind of a difficulty breaking down. Ammonia is normally produced in the body anyway through the bacteria that's in our gut to some degree and the foods that we eat and amino acid metabolism and catabolism and everything. But still, nonetheless, if we have too much of it, it can cause anxiety. And it all stems from someone just having H. pylori, for example, and just causing too much of a glutamate GABA imbalance in the brain. I mean glutamate of course is important for the brain. It's a neurotransmitter and GABA is too, but too much glutamine, it's too excitatory in the brain. You know, it promotes anxiety. If there's too much glutamate it can cause seizures. I mean that's where seizure disorder comes from, where GABA is an inhibitory transmitter. It stops glutamine and a promotes calmness. I'm pretty sure some people in their life have taken benzodiazepines like Valium, ZX or Ativan, and that promotes a sense of calmness. Or even the natural route of taking supplemental GABA or Valerian route, it would cause relaxation. So the gut kind of through the microbiome, through this what they call the gut-brain connection, the gut-brain axis, our microbiome directly influences our brain and vice versa. A lot of it could also be from the vagus nerve too. Which helps controls a lot of your autonomic nervous system, your digestion, you know, your heartbeat, your breathing. These bacteria, when they produce endotoxins like H. Pylori, for example, it can start either colonizing the vagus nerve itself if it gets into the bloodstream, or the body can produce antibodies to the endotoxins that H. Pylori produce, and it can start causing inflammation and start attacking the Galil cells that are within the vagus nerve and they're within the brain it can cause anxiety, brain fog, and mental issues they call dysautonomia. So it's interesting how the gut and the brain are connected to that. Is it possible that the microorganisms that make up our body, are they what make us up? Are they what drive us to do certain things or to do certain (laughs) actions? I like to say there's probably more than that. I like to say there's probably the soul aspect and the conscious, the subconscious and the unconscious actions that make up our lives, you know, but it is a possibility that these microorganisms could at least at the bare minimum influence our mental health.
1: Oh, yeah. It's like so hard to separate these influences You know, external mind control and social engineering influences? What is our own consciousness? What is our physical brain and body? It's a lot to unpack and you really can't isolate what a person is. It's just like it's too interconnected to so many different factors. And time is just flying by here, man. I'm loving this. What can be said about why we're in this mess? Obviously, the tide is kind of hard to turn back now that we have all this corporate food and these lobbyists and monsanto's the monster it is and the medical system is so screwed up but when you look at the history involved here and the road that got us here where do you shine the spotlight what do you think have been kind of the biggest factors in this big mess
3: well, I mean, you've had many people on your show talk about Rockefeller's co-opting allopathic medicine. You know, you had Clive Carl on, you had Jim Mars on, and they've talked about it mm-hmm. at length of how conventional medicine is pretty much Rockefeller medicine through the develop of petroleum derivative type drugs, through Rockefeller buying out I. G. Farben, to how we actually look at the medical professional and how it's formatted through the AMA to begin with. There used to be in the early 1900s both naturopathic, homopathic, and conventional allopathic medicine. It was taught in different universities throughout the United States, and they kind of coexisted with one another. And then when the Rockefellers were like, oh, well, there's not really much money in quote-unquote curing people <laughs> <laughs> natural, I would assume they kind of co-opted it. I mean, they hired Abraham Flexner, submit a report to Congress in 1910 that there was just too many doctors. There's too many medical schools in the United States. And we kind of need to bring it together <laughs> and have the AMA grant medical school licenses to the United States to try to control. Of course, those medical school licenses primarily went to allopathic medicine, <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. you know,
3: universities, for example. So, you know, we have the Rockefeller's definitely influencing it. But I almost want to say it's more than just that. I mean, through the dawn of time, we've always had both conventional medicine and naturopathic medicine warring with one another. And we've had both sides show both positives and negatives. I'm not full naturopathic medicine for people that are on holistic medicine. I kind of look at it as integrative approach. For example, if I get in a car accident and I'm dying of trauma, Granted, natural medicine, there are some things that I would take, some supplements that I would take that would facilitate proper recovery, but it's not going to save my life when I'm bleeding out, Mm -hmm. Greg. It's just not. Mm -hmm. That's where conventional medicine is needed. But the problem with conventional medicine is the mainstream looking at it is it takes care of everything. Conventional medicine is extremely bad, extremely bad track record with degenerative diseases like heart disease disease cancer, and autoimmune conditions. That's really where conventional medicine severely drops the ball in and where natural medicine is superior in most ways, any way you can think of, to conventional medicine. That's where it seems to start with is this whole co-optive of the medical movement. But is it a possibility that it's always been here since the very beginning? I mean, they're originally treating medical conditions with mercury back in the day yeah, you know, Greg, and it, it, we all know now that <laughs> mercury is toxic. I mean, they were still using mercury on cuts until the 1970s. Heck, I remember my great grandfather when I was about 10 years old seeing a bottle of Merichrome in his in medicine cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and you could say that well, maybe naturopaths were using mercury, and maybe they just didn't know any better at the time. But then again, I like to say that I don't know our ancestors knew quite a lot, and. Maybe the use of mercury was pushed forth by more of an allopathic, conventional global cabal. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. this possibility. But to answer your question of where we've got to now, where do you want to start? Everything <laughs> that we come in contact with could be a problem to our digestive health and microbiome. I mean, the overuse of antibiotics, the overuse of medications, chemtrails, water being polluted with chemicals and bacteria and parasites and GMO foods. Most people talk about genetically modified corn and it containing Bt toxin. And most scientists will say, oh, Bt toxin is inactivated by stomach acid. It has to thrive in a high pH for it to become activated like an insect's stomach, which is all fine and dandy. But what if someone takes a proton pump inhibitor and their resting acidification of their stomach is between four and six? ph and then they go eat a genetically modified corn tortilla and some of that Bt toxin is inactivated and moves into the more alkaline small intestine and then becomes activated. We have no studies of this, Greg. We have no idea. None of this has ever been studied or looked at in humans, especially its effect on the microbiome and digestion. You know, it's ludicrous to go around and think that GMOs are safe when there's no strong human studies. They just go, "Well, it's been out in the wild in front of humans for 30 some plus years, you know, so therefore it has to be safe." No one's dropping dead. From consuming GMO corn tortilla. (laughs) And I just have to disagree. You know, it has to have some effect on our microbiomes. And it's a combination of all this. I mean, EMF radiation, for example, you know, I know we had Sophia Smallstorm on and she was talking about 5G and exposure to EMF. We know that EMF directly affects microorganisms that can cause them to be more virulent in some degrees through our exposure. So it has to have some effect on our microbiome. I mean, they might be a very small effect. I think it's a much larger effect. But most people with conventional knowledge and our establishment sources like the media, they all say, well, it probably doesn't have any effect at all, or if the effect it has is negligible. Well, how can that be when man's main exposure to EMF radiation was occasional solar storm and lightning strike? Well, now it's ubiquitous in nature everywhere in our modern first world societies when people have cell phones glued to their hip. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to have some effect on our microbiome and bacteria and yeast and parasites and viruses. It has to have some effect on it. It can't just be a non-starter. All these things combined have to have some effect on our microbiome, vaccinations, to the food that we eat, to the way we live our lives. You know, it has to have some effect. I mean, let's take Lyme disease, for example. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: I believe that Lyme disease, Borella, is 100% man-made. Borella itself is not. It's ubiquitous in nature. I'm talking about strains of Borella that cause... Lyme disease. I think a tick somehow managed to hitch a ride on a bird to Old Lyme, Connecticut, which is about five to 10 miles away from the bio research laboratory that's on Plum Island, mm. where they claim that they're just researching the effects of bacteria on livestock to try to save the United States' livestock supply. But I mean, when you really look into Plum Island, you start saying, well, wait a minute, this doesn't really seem like it adds up. We have Eric Traub, who was a veterinarian who studied at the Rockefeller Institute in Princeton, New Jersey. He went back over to Nazi Germany. We don't really know too much what he did over there in Nazi Germany as a veterinarian, but we do know after Operation Paperclip, when they brought him back here and had him work in Plum Island, that he was studying the virus that causes foot and mouth disease. They brought him over here and he helped establish Plum Island. I and mean, they actually offered him to be the director of Plum Island in the late 50s, and he ended up turning it down. So there you have this connection of Operation Paperclip again to bringing the Nazi scientists over here to propagate their further research. So you have three different outbreaks that we know of linked to Plum Island, and that's Borrelia, which causes Lyme disease, West Nile virus, which was discovered in the early 1900s in Uganda. And it was usually found in North Africa, the Middle East and stuff like that. But lo and a hold it shows itself up in the Western Hemisphere. All of a sudden, in 1999, in Queens, New York, of all places, which is 45 miles away from Plum Island. <laughs> it doesn't take a lot to put it together, you know, Greg, that some of these bacteria or some of the viruses, they're man-made. They're made, produced by our own government and they're having effect on our health. Lyme disease, for example, chronic Lyme is causing a lot of health issues for a lot of people. And Lyme was discovered in the mid-70s in Lyme, Connecticut. And you wouldn't think that doctors would miss the characteristic bullseye rash. Now, granted, it doesn't happen in every Lyme disease case, but they would discovered beforehand someone gets a bullseye rash, someone gets joint pain, and someone gets a fever. So to say that all of a sudden they just got the diagnostic capability of discovering that borrelia causes Lyme or that Lyme disease was even a thing in the 1970s that it just showed itself up is ludicrous Greg it's like <laughs> autism increasing exponentially because of diagnostic methods. You know, it's right next to Plum Island. All of a sudden, you have a virulent strain of Borrelia that probably came from experimentation of horizontal gene transfer, of trying to make it more virulent and putting the spirochete into ticks. Then somehow a tick managing to get off of Plum Island to Old Lyme, you know, maybe it hits your ride on a bird or something. This is interesting. It's just so hard for people to kind of look at that and to kind of believe that maybe this is a man-made Variation to a common bacteria. I mean, we know Borella. There are a lot of people walking around with it that are asymptomatic that may have gotten tick bites in the past and they didn't get full blown Lyme disease or even sexually transmitted it because it is a spirochete similar to syphilis, but it is transmitted through sex. So is the difference between the reason why someone gets Lyme disease and the someone who's walking around with Borella and doesn't have any symptoms whatsoever? Is the difference this specific strain that was genetically? manipulated that was released from Plum Island? I would say so. I mean, you probably talked about, and I love cryptozoology. I'm a huge fan of it. Actually, my eight-year-old son is obsessed with Bigfoot. (laughs) But a lot of people, yeah, I know you've talked about the Montauk creature. And a lot of people say that that came from Plum Island, you know, whatever the heck the raccoon looking thing looked like, (laughs) Uh, you know, and it would fit the bill. I mean, Plum Island is pretty close to Montauk, New York, so it could have washed up on the beach, you know, so. (laughs) I'm with you it's just interesting of how people think well the government would never bioengineer a weapon. That's against the Geneva Convention. Right. <laughs> you know, but I'm pretty sure it's going on. It has to be going on. Yeah. It's interesting that they say, well, we're just doing the research on Plum Island just to protect our livestock. Initially the idea for Plum Island and even beforehand for Diedrich was to develop these biological weapons. Mm. But no, nah, we're not doing it anymore. Instead, we're using it just to protect our livestock. It's just ludicrous to me, Greg.
1: Oh, yeah. We've seen that before where chemical companies turn into food companies and Monsanto used to make Agent Orange. Yeah, that's not surprising that these companies go back and forth between areas of weaponization and things that are harmful. And then, oh, yeah, we're just going to actually give them the keys to the castle when it comes to public health. That sounds wise.
3: Yeah. One last thing I want to mention, too, is HIV, which most people know it supposedly causes the autoimmune condition AIDS. A common retrovirus is the cause of it. They forget to leave out that the parasite entelamoebala hislica has a way of possibly modulating the virulence of the lentivirus, of HIV, and making it possibly what causes people to get AIDS is because, you know, the actual HIV Cells are consumed by Entamoeba hislica and can be spread throughout the body, so it is a big possibility that AIDS is just a massive Entamoeba hislica infection as the primary agent and the retrovirus HIV itself is just a secondary issue. It would make sense Entamoeba hislica as a parasite is commonly found in the colon, and one of the main ways of getting HIV and AIDS is through anal sex which could tear the anus over time and cause a propagation of entalnebal hislica to get into the bloodstream. I mean, HIV and AIDS is not commonly spread through oral sex or through vaginal sex. It could happen, but it's generally rare. So, I mean, there goes again, another re- relation to the microbiome and possibly causing another autoimmune or you know actual pathogenic disease condition.
1: Wow. I mean, that's interesting. It's also taboo, but I've never really thought about it from that connection to the gut perspective which does seem to make sense in this wider context and you also mentioned to me some concerns that the company viome might be studying our microbiome for the elite kind of like a microbiome version of the popular 23andme genetic test which of course raised my suspicions but why are you raising the red flag on viome what has you concern here what looks a little off to you
3: The thing that concerns me most about Viome, and I'll say it simply put, we can go on to it a little bit more, is because the government has access to your microbiome because all the tests for Viome are done at the Los Alamos
1: National Laboratory. Oh, yeah, that'll do it.
3: (laughs) So you kind of get scared there because they have, I mean, Viome, it was started by Naveen John. He went to Los Alamos and he was like, hey, I want to use your testing mechanism of using polychain or PCR testing to map out the microbiome. And Los Alamos said, yeah, we'll do it, but we want you to still do it at our laboratories. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, that's where I'm scared. <laughs> that's why I would not recommend anybody do Viome. There's much safer microbiome tests that are probably better than do a, a microbiome culture and a PCR test like Genova GI GIFX. I definitely would not want the government to have access to my microbiome. I don't think you want the government to have access to your microbiome, to the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Now, of course, Naveen John says that your microbiome is safe, that the government's probably not going to have any access to it. But when you got the Los Alamos Laboratory doing the testing, it kind of raises some red flags. (laughs) Just like with 23andMe, when you had the founder of Google's wife starting the company, It kind of throws out some red flags.
1: (laughs) I see what you're saying there. Yeah, of course. And you had mentioned the effects of psychedelics on the gut. Of course, we should get into that. I don't know how specific you want to get or if you've really looked at each one individually, but definitely an interesting subject. I know my gut sometimes is feeling it pretty hard when I have a dose of mushrooms. I can say (laughs) that for sure. But... Tell us a little bit about this kind of fringy area of the research you've done.
3: Yeah, Greg, I mean, it's sad. We don't have a lot of research, and I'll talk about it, of the microbiome effects of LSD, psilocybin, salvia, DMT. Well, of course, with any ayahuasca tea, you have to take an MAO inhibitor with the DMT, and the MAO inhibitor itself has a strong negative effect on the gut. DMT itself doesn't really seem to have a negative effect on the gut, per se. But we don't really have a study of the microbiome effects of consuming these for example, if eating mushrooms or consuming them, so psilocybin. So yeah, it would have some effect on the microbiome. We just don't, It's not studied. But we do know the effects of alcohol and we do know the effects of marijuana. Now, the effects of alcohol, drinking a little drink on occasion <laughs> could be beneficial. I mean, especially if it's wine. Wine has strong antioxidant capabilities, a pretty good prebiotic. An occasional glass of wine could have a very nice positive benefit on the microbiome. That's been well studied. Chronic alcoholism, on the other hand, has a very negative effect on the microbiome and a very negative effect, too, on the digestive system. I mean, it taxes the liver, causes cirrhosis. Alcohol itself, I hate to say it now since I've become ill, I'm a complete straight-edge teetotaler. I don't Uh, even consume caffeine. That's cool. (laughs) But hey, I used to smoke marijuana back in the day. I still have my eight-ball steamroller (laughs) (laughs) somewhere in storage. Marijuana, on the other hand, you know, I do want to get on the other psychedelics too as well, LSD, psilocybin, salvia, and DMT, and peyote and everything. But marijuana seems to have the most positive effect on the microbiome and digestion out of all the hallucinogens. Thank God. Yeah. THC, we know it's a cannabinoid, and it works similar to the neurotransmitter, anamide, and its way of affecting all the positives from anti-inflammatory to anti-cancer to helping proper immune function. THC has a positive effect on the microbiome, and so does uh, cannabinol, also known as CBD oil. They both have a very positive effect on the microbiome. And it's actually probably better for most people to consume marijuana with THC and CBD oil together. You've had Rick Simpson on the Higher Side Chats. Mm -hmm. Rick Simpson oil, of course, the combination of both THC and other cannabinoid oils. Seem to have a better benefit of overall health, if all possible. But if you can't, because it's illegal, and I understand, sadly, the way of controlling the populace, then CBD oil will have some positive effect for digestion in the microbiome. But let's get down in the weeds. Let's get down to why it works. Sure. Marijuana relieves nausea because uh, THC inhibits the 5 HT3 serotonin receptor, similar to the mechanism by which ginger helps relieve nausea. A lot of pregnant women will take ginger to help relieve morning sickness. So it works very well for that. The problem with that is, is some people with gastroparesis or delayed gastric emptying, it could cause those problems. So they'd have to look out for that. We do know that marijuana also stimulates appetite works very well for that. It does that by stimulating the cannabinoid receptors. So of course, the munchies, that's where it comes from. (laughs) (laughs) It also reduces gut pain by manipulating the TRPV1 receptors and also increases Colonic activity. So it may work very well for constipation for some people. I mean, that activation or modulation of the TRPV1 is similar to eating spicy foods. It works the same way. You know, if you don't eat spicy foods for a long time and you go eat some ghost peppers, you're going to be crapping out your guts. Mm -hmm. So marijuana does have a way of getting that good morning token, just like a lot of that morning coffee that people drink and they have to go do a bowel movement or that morning cigarette. It does have a positive colonic effect. People with diarrhea, are people with SIBO with diarrhea or IBS with diarrhea you probably wouldn't want to smoke marijuana because it could trigger that. But people with constipation, it would have a really good positive effect on that. Huh. But we do know that THC itself does have a positive effect on the microbiome. It reduces a lot of opportunistic growth that's found in the gut, a lot of the opportunistic clostridia and bacilla, like staphylococcus growth and provotella growth that can cause a lot of digestive issues. It also increases the probiotic acromansum mucophilia, which is very important because it helps to maintain the mucosal barrier within the gut and within our esophagus. So it would appear that THC itself, the bacteria in your gut, they like it a lot and they like it very positively, Greg. Nice. So, I mean, that's another... Positive for THC. <laughs> There's one rare condition, and it's extremely rare, and it's unknown if THC or activation of cannabinoids caused this. And it's called cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome. Generally, you know, you'll you'll have that, and it usually only occurs in long-term marijuana users, and it's extremely rare. Where if it happens, you'll just vomit a lot, you know, and uncontroll, and it'll be related to your intake of THC. Hmm. But just stopping marijuana and hot showers seem to help with that. And we don't quite know why it happens yet. It could actually have nothing to do with THC or marijuana itself. It could be just something that THC or marijuana exasperates or makes worse. We don't know. Another hallucinogen that seems to have a positive effect on digestion, but we don't know its effect on the microbiome, is salvia devatorum. Hmm. Salvium is a kappa opioid agonist. So it worked very well for people with diarrhea. It would reduce intestinal spasms and intestinal pain. So it worked very well for that. And salvia is also a dopamine agonist. So it would help also to slow down motility in those people. But it could cause acid reflux by reducing lower esophageal tone and and delaying stomach emptying. So people with silent reflux or gastrointestinal reflux probably don't want to, to smoke salvia. But for everyone else, it could have a benefit, especially if you have a more spastic colon or more prone to diarrhea. That could have a very positive benefit on the microbiome or digestion, should I say. Now, we do know that LSD and psilocybin, it's kind of mixed. Psilocybin is way safer on the gut than LSD is. LSD increases serotonin so strongly in the body way more than psilocybin does. It's strongly associated with nausea and vomiting. And digestive discomfort and diarrhea. Granted, not as strong as people who ingest ayahuasca tea because of the MAOA inhibitor that they have to take with it. You know, whether it's Ben sister Opus, copy vine or Syrian root, the MAOA inhibitor definitely causes what is known as the ayahuasca purge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but smoking DMT itself wouldn't have that problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would bypass the need of an MAOA inhibitor. I mean, DMT, it's funny. I know you've had people discuss it, great links on your podcast. I'm not going to go too in depth in it, but it is found and a lot of plants that we eat, I mean, it's extremely common in citrus fruits like lemon and oranges. And the reason why you don't trip balls every time you ingest uh, an orange is because you have this MAOA inhibitor enzyme that kind of breaks down DMT and renders it useless. Mm-hmm. So that's why people have to ingest the capy vine or Syrian rue to kind of work as MAO or take prescription MAO inhibitors, which do have a very negative effect on the gut. Now, psilocybin It doesn't have a strong effect digestive-wise as strong as LSD does on its increase of serotonin through activation of 5-HT2A receptors. But it can cause in some people queasiness, nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea. So it could be a possibility in people with constipation that psilocybin could be helpful, but I would argue that marijuana and salvia are probably safer, definitely (laughs) safer
1: so salvia helps with diarrhea and consciousness-to-consciousness communication with interdimensional entities. Yeah. So if you got either of those issues that you're trying to solve, little salvia, do your write-up.
3: <laughs> yeah, very much so. And marijuana would help a lot with constipation. So yeah, I mean, I'm not against psychedelic use, obviously. And I've talked about it off and on through Fix Your God. I do believe in the medicinal benefits of marijuana. There's no doubt about it. I think there's medicinal benefits in psilocybin and salvia too as well. DMT two, LSD and eh, not so much. <laughs> uh, but then again, it's probably because I'm worried about LSD possibly being produced by the government. <laughs> initially.
1: Of course. I also have the same concern, man. I've only really done that one once, although I have friends who will tell me they keep pushing it. They're like, there's a lot less likely chance you'll have a bad trip than if you take mushrooms. And that is an argument that is pretty persuasive to me. No one wants a bad trip, but at the same time, I have those same laboratory concerns. Of course, you could say a lot of researchers are bringing up the fact that Gordon Wasson is who extracted, you know, not extracted in a chemical sense, but pulled the mushroom out of the indigenous cultures in Mexico from that trip they took down there and yes. filmed it for that show and put it all in Life Magazine, which was apparently owned by the Skull and Bones. So. That's a curious road, too, but at least it grows in the ground.
3: I would actually argue that psilocybin is a lot shorter trip than LSD. And I know the trip may be more intense, but I myself, I've done psilocybin only once in my life. I've done psilocybin a handful of times. Oh, Of course, a lot of this was when I was a lot younger. Yeah. <laughs> no worse is I've been sick that I do any of this. I, mean, I actually did ayahuasca, too. Wow. As much as I enjoy DMT, its effects, I would never recommend ever consuming ayahuasca again, just because, like I said, I purged my guts on a toilet. Man, I don't necessarily enjoyed that very much. The trip was nice. Ingesting ayahuasca, on the other hand, not really worth it (laughs) in my my
1: mind. No, not a pleasant experience, I hear.
3: No, 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 no. But I mean, these all do have effect on our gut, both positively and negatively. And I am probably the most concerned about LSD. I know there are people... They claim it's safer. Something about it just skeeves me out, Greg.
1: Mm-hmm, hmm And well, these aren't people who know that it's safer, they just feel that its polarity is more positive, whereas, you know, with some of these things, it can be a grab bag of if you're going to get taken to a dark place. And, you know, if you're hanging out at an Airbnb cabin in the mountains going snowboarding with friends, you don't want to be taken to a dark place. So anything I could do to hedge my bets is appealing. But at the same time, you're right. You just got to be careful because there is that added caveat that it was cooked up in a lab.
3: Yeah. With LSD, I would assume it's been more widely pronounced with extreme trips where people have not been able to come back from more than psilocybin. But I guess I could be mistaken on that.
1: That's, that's a fair point too. And I think a lot of people who take it to that burnout level, it's hard to isolate what did it because they're throwing so much in their system. But uh, I do like this kind of conversation. And I noticed that it does look like you're working on a second book project related to fixing our mitochondria, which I didn't even really know you could do. I thought that was kind of outside the realm of what I had control over. But maybe you could give us a little preview of the stuff you plan to cover in that next book.
3: Yeah, I mean, you know, our mitochondria are very important for our health. I mean, some people can say it determines whether or not we live or die. When our mitochondria, it's time for the mitochondria to stop working, you know, it starts cell adiposes and our cells die. You know, I mean, they've talked about the mitochondrial theory of aging and how if we can improve electron transport chain and mitochondrial efficiency, then we might be able to improve longevity, maybe to the point where we can live forever. You know, that being said, I don't want that. I look at that as a form of transhumanism. As much as I am afraid that when I die I'll be reincarnated back here on Earth, through of my more Gnostic Christian beliefs, nonetheless, mm-hmm. I still think that I much rather die than live forever trapped in a dystopian hell.
1: <laughs> Cheers. So, the
3: main reason why I think mitochondrial function is important, and I wouldn't take it to the degree of eternal life, but I would take it to the degree of improving a person's health. You know, improving their heart function. I mean, my wife's great grandfather had heart failure. And we got him on ubiquitol and PQQ and increased his ejection fraction of his heart from about 22% to about 70%. So he was able to come off oxygen. And of course, you know, he did eventually succumb to heart failure, but it wasn't years down the line. I mean, he made a recovery and lived, I'd say, a good another five to six years before he succumbed to the illness. It's interesting, of, you know, he would have succumbed much quicker to that. You know, he would have succumbed within a matter of months or a matter of years if no intervention would have been done. You know, just working on simple things to work on his mitochondria. My son, for example, I can use Abel. His condition, majority of the children had documented cases of cardiomyopathy, of weak heart, dying pretty much of heart failure. He was the only case who did not. Even when he died, his heart was remarkably strong. Through the autopsy, there was no indication of cardiomyopathy at at all. I, not to toot my own horn, think it was because I gave him ubiquinol, I gave him magnesium, I gave him PQQ, I exposed him to sunlight, I tried to get him fresh structured water, I tried to do the things to increase mitochondrial function, and that's why his heart was able to overcome that issue. And the reason why I wanted to write my second book is because we live in a world that destroys our mitochondria, that zaps our energy, that causes us to have cognitive dysfunction and all these mitochondrial dysfunction-linked conditions like diabetes and heart failure and heart disease, for example. And we're our mitochondria are on a constant onslaught every day of oxidants, you know, EMF radiation, heavy metals chemtrails, poor sleep, poor diet, all these things that we're under, and we have to have some way to try to fight back to have a better life against this.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, you know, if it, most people you talk to, they they have poor sleep, they have poor energy, they can barely think and barely function when they go throughout the day. And a lot of this has to deal with the microbiome, which is why I wrote Fix Your Gut, but also has to deal with the functioning and the health of their mitochondria too as well.
1: Makes sense, man. You just know so much about so much, and it's just awesome to try to digest as much as I can. I hope people out there are taking notes. (laughs) But before we go, do tell people where they can find your website and anything else you're working on or services you offer that they just might not know about yet.
3: My website is fixyourgut.com. Definitely, it was through the help of a good friend of mine, Titus Wilson. He's definitely, if it wasn't for me, I would still be doing nothing and doing my best to survive off the grid and pot items as I could. <laughs> but yeah, we started the website together. I actually helped his sister who had a seizure disorder. I helped her through and everything, and she's still alive today. My book, Fix Your Gut, it's on Amazon. And anybody who's listening to the podcast, Greg, if it's okay with you, I'd like to offer to her for free. Just put the code HIGHERSIDE in on my website. Wow to give it to anybody. I've been a huge fan. It's the least I can do. Man. at least I can.
1: I definitely appreciate that. It's a really giving thing to do on a big promotional opportunity, you know?
3: Yeah, I also offer coaching not to toot my home horn a little bit. If anybody's having digestive issues, don't hesitate to reach out to me. But yeah, hopefully one day I am writing a book in my spare time about the co-option of the right. And maybe one day I'll have that done so that I could put that out. But it won't be anytime soon, my friend.
1: Right on. Well, I had a real blast listening to the first and second hour for sure. Of course, they're very different for people who didn't hear the plus show, but we left so much on the table in both hours that I really think we should follow this up with another show fairly soon that kind of is split up in the same way, which allows the privacy of the second hour, but also allows us to get into all kinds of crazy stuff. And I've said this many times in wrap-ups and then it just gets away from me or the guest or whatever, but we should really set that up soon because I think this was great, man. And uh, you're the kind of guy I really love to promote. You've, you've suffered at the hands of the machine, no doubt. And I just think that to come out the other side, it's a beautiful thing. Like so many people never do. So many people never wake up to this. I've had many friends who have slowly watched their parents die Because they can't stop eating cheeseburgers or their parents go to the doctor and they don't make it about the diet at all. And the parent comes home and they say, oh, well, I'm fine. I just had a triple bypass. And the kid's like, well, you need to change your diet. And they're like, what do you know, kid? Doctor didn't tell me that. And they know, but they're in denial. And there's people that will not see their grandchildren ever because they couldn't live long enough to do so. And it is just a real damn shame, man. So kudos to you for staying strong. Congratulations on finding the answers that you have found. Just thanks, man. I'm glad you reached out. I'm glad we could do this. Keep fighting the good fight.
3: Will do, Greg. Thank you for having me on. Uh, We'll be listening to the Higher Side Chats as always. And if you're not a Plus member, please subscribe. It is definitely worth it.
1: (laughs) Right on. I appreciate that too. So take care out there and we'll be talking again soon. You too, Greg. There we have it, folks. Holy hell and hallelujah. The great John Brisson, FixYourGut.com. I just think this is not only a really interesting topic because of the behavioral and thought-altering potentials of these things in our gut. I mean, that is the core of conspiracy, right? We want to get a full handle on what's influencing us. And we go so far as to consider that the ideas and thoughts that float into our heads could be seeded by unseen forces and intelligences. We talk about think tanks influencing culture, but we can't neglect the bacteria, viruses, and parasites that might be in the mix too. I think that's an aspect of even health-based episodes that's really unique here. I know John voiced a couple of concerns to me after we were wrapping up, that we really went to the most emotional and controversial type of parasite-causing effect when we talked about gender dysmorphia. And that is just something that came up naturally. And then I sort of prompted him to elaborate because it's a hell of a thing to gloss over. I thought it was really provocative. And, you know, if there's data to show a possible connection, we have to consider that. I mean, something is making a person feel like they're in the wrong body. We don't know if it's something innate in the body, something a person feels deep in their core, or maybe it's the side effect of a certain bacteria. If it is, shouldn't we know that? The transhumanism campaign is talked about a lot in conspiracy circles, maybe even too much, but it's worth considering that it's possible the elite know this information and maybe they even help grow or inject that certain bacteria into the meat or the dairy animals that we take in. Or at least we should know this information because maybe we can help some people out. Nobody wants to feel like they're in the wrong body, right? Maybe instead of hacking up their parts, we can just fix their gut. I don't know. I am just spitballing here. I don't have a dog in the fight. I want everyone to enjoy their life and live it however they need to live it. And it's a shame that we have to say that same speech every time we get controversial. But I'm doing it. So I don't think John really needs to worry about that. I think we can consider these ideas, consider that data without freaking out whether it turns out to be conclusively true or not. But man, the main thing for me here is that you just got to respect the journey the guy has been on, losing his parents young, having his own health go through the ringer, and then losing his son when his own protocol might have been prolonging his son's life and giving him a better quality of life. It's just so impressive because so many people would just collapse under that sort of emotional and physical toll. But he has a great attitude despite it all, and it really puts into perspective how bad is our life really? Yeah, there's a lot of campaigns and agendas out there, and we definitely digest them, dig into them. We want to know what's happening. But a story like John's just puts into perspective how bad it can get for some of us, and how lucky some of us are if we haven't been touched to that degree by the oily appendages of the capstone cabal. And if you do have a more serious condition, consider working with John one-on-one. I know he does have a consulting business, and why shouldn't a guy be able to forge financial security through the hard work he's done working through complex data and research? Especially when he's willing to share so much of that for free. Also, this is a bit of a tangent, but I had a listener contact me about a new platform called Discord. It's something for gamers, I know, and it's honestly a bit complex and overwhelming on first glance. I am a gamer, but I'm also just a console guy. I'm not getting into that Twitch stuff or this Discord type of stuff. But anyway, it's sort of a live, ongoing chat, and I guess the point would be for me to set up times to be there and do Q&As. And maybe that will be a plus thing. Archangel X was savvy enough to set up some private plus features from the start. But either way, if you know what Discord is, we've got one. If you don't and you want to get into it, we got one. The real point is that John is a big fan of the platform and he has been on it talking to people all week. All these Discord group folks have known this was going to be the next episode for a minute, I think. But I did want to promote it and just let people know it's there. Obviously, any little community we have is going to be better by more people joining up. And I personally am a little sick of all the goddamn social media profiles that I have to deal with. And it is what it is, but this one might be a little bit different. And when you guys can communicate amongst yourselves, I think that just makes the experience better for everybody and people can throw around ideas when this kind of material can be somewhat isolating for a lot of us. Also, while we're on the subject, I've been really impressed with the higher side chats, Facebook group. I didn't even want to make one for so long. Same reason, too many goddamn profiles, but a listener wanted to make one. It's called the higher side chats network. And for example, when this recent shooting happened in Florida, It was the best place for taking a good, rational, objective look at the event and some of the things that didn't add up. Everyone there is super respectful and pretty positive, and there's a lot of great laughs to be had. Because this can be dark and defeating material at times, but I think that group is really killing it. They got a great tone. They're dropping in all the mermaid stuff and culture too. Check it out. You know, If you're looking for a better use for Facebook, it's not a bad option. Also, I think I'm going to start moving the Higher Side Chats over to DTube instead of YouTube. I think they've improved the user experience over there quite a bit, which was a problem for me. But now I think it's worth doing. But to meander back to the topic at hand, big thanks to John for spending some extra time with us. We recorded for almost three hours, two hours and 45 minutes after editing. And I really appreciate it. He also spent that time in a hot shed just trying to get the best audio environment for the recording, which is also something a lot of people don't do. Got to give a guy a digital high five for that. And for people who did hear that second hour, the Plus Show, it is a completely different topic than the Fix Your Gut first hour. In fact, it's a deep dive into research John has been doing into the conservative think tanks and the co-option of the right, because John grew up conservative, so he's got a lot of personal interest in seeing how people who think on the conservative side of the spectrum have been manipulated by these backseat drivers. And it even touches on some prolific UFO researchers and why these certain companies might be publishing their work. It's pretty deep stuff. But it is great that it's all behind the PLUS paywall only because I wouldn't want something so politically charged and polarizing to distract from John's health work. So if you're down for that deeper conversation, sign up for PLUS. If you want to hear about some networks that aren't talked about all that much, that's the place to hear about it. I think it's really great stuff because if, for example, like the CFR was a major influence and string controller behind the Bush-Clinton-Obama network, then the Council for National Policy would be a similar group, but with their own network of members and operatives, according to John, and, of course, with that, their own agendas. So if it seems like Trump has different masters, maybe the same masters as Alex Jones, this is where the ties that bind seem to be centered. We also talk a lot about the provocative change in Red Ice Radio over the years. For people who might be interested in that, some conspiracy media drama for you guys, if that's your thing. I also wanted to say that another reason to sign up for Plus is that we have a Plus exclusive episode coming out with Lori Handerhan. I already recorded it. It's a real knockout show, but it is only an hour and it's really dark material about human trafficking and pedophilia. In fact, her book is called Epidemic, America's Trade and Child Rape. So it is not for the faint of heart, but it is very important stuff. She said that the material is just too draining to do a full two hour interview on. So we just did one and it will be there for plus people probably before the weekend's over. Might as well sign up for plus now. And the only other thing I wanted to throw out there related to health, and it's not a commercial or a paid endorsement, but it might help people because it's helped me. If we're talking about health and I know diet is so hard to be vigilant about, at least it is for me. I signed up for this thing called ButcherBox. It's one of those food-by-mail subscription services, but it's all grass-fed, hormone-free meat. I pay like 120 bucks a month, I think, but for that, we get all the meat we can eat in a month, for me and my wife. So we just go to the store, and we grab our vegetables. And cooking meat with a couple healthy sides is simple enough, even if you're not a great cook. And it's really working out great, so... I'd recommend that for anyone who's looking for a quality meat source that's pretty reasonable cost-wise when you piece it all out, especially if you're in the Midwest somewhere, like where I grew up in Arnold, Missouri. It's a bit of a food desert. There's only corporate food around. The grocery stores are really not as top tier as the stuff you're going to get in the coastal cities. So, you know, maybe have it sent factory direct. It's just a random little thing that has helped out a little bit in the Carlwood household. But I guess that's it for me. I'll see you guys soon. Your move, arconic, parasitic, and conspiratorial causers of the gargantuan, multi-generational gut problems of America and thus the world. Your fucking move.
0: Let's